Our call to worship this morning comes from the first letter of John. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. Living love, beginning and end, giver of food and drink, clothing and warmth, love and hope, life in all its goodness, we praise and adore you. Jesus, wisdom and word, lover of outcasts, friend of the poor, yet one of us and yet one with God, crucified and risen, life in the midst of death, we praise and adore you. Holy Spirit, storm and breath of love, bridge builder, eye-opener, waker of the oppressed, unseen and unexpected, untamable energy of life, we praise and adore you. Holy Trinity, forever one, whose nature is community, source of all sharing, in whom we love and meet and know our neighbour. Life in all its fullness, we praise and adore you, gathering our prayers in the words that Jesus taught his friends, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 to 9. Isaiah 40, starting at the first verse. Comfort my people, says our God. Comfort them. Encourage the people of Jerusalem. Tell them they have suffered long enough and their sins are now forgiven. I have punished them in full for all their sins. A voice cries out, Prepare in the wilderness a road for the Lord. Clear the way in the desert for our God. Fill every valley. Level every mountain. The hills will become a plain, and the rough country will be made smooth. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it. The Lord himself has promised this. A voice cries out, Proclaim a message. What message shall I proclaim, I ask? Proclaim that all human beings are like grass. They last no longer than wild flowers. Grass withers and flowers fade when the Lord sends the wind blowing over them. People are no more enduring than grass. Yes, grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Jerusalem, go up on a high mountain and proclaim the good news. 
Call out with a loud voice, Zion. Announce the good news. Speak out and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah that their God is coming. And then from the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Mark 1, starting at the first verse. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It began as the prophet Isaiah had written. God said, I will send my messenger ahead of you to open the way for you. Someone is shouting in the desert, get the road ready for the Lord, make a straight path for him to travel. So John appeared in the desert, baptizing and preaching. Turn away from your sins and be baptized, he told the people, and God will forgive your sins. Many people from the province of Judea and the city of Jerusalem went out to hear John. They confessed their sins and he baptized them in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. He announced to the people, The man who will come after me is much greater than I am. I am not good enough even to bend down and untie his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Not long afterwards, Jesus came from Nazareth in the province of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As soon as Jesus came out of the water, he saw heaven opening and the Spirit coming down on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my own dear son. I am pleased with you. For the next few weeks, we're going to be focusing in our sermon slots on the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to go through it in a fairly systematic way. And we begin today at the beginning, because that's a very good place to start, as the song says. I don't know about you, but I remember when I was being taught how to write stories, and later how to write essays and even scientific reports... There was a huge emphasis on getting the first few sentences right. That you've got maybe a hundred words to capture the attention of your reader and draw them into what comes next. You'd be surprised how long I spend on the opening paragraph of my sermons week by week because that's not my natural thing to write attractive engaging words. I kind of still am that scientist at heart who just wants to get down to the factual information and get on with it. I wasn't very good at writing stories at school, although I'm not bad at telling them if I just free myself up. But hooking in your audience, setting the scene for what follows, and beginning to make your case are really important, whether we're writing an email or a letter, a story, a poem, an essay, a report. We need to get people engaged in what we're going to say because otherwise they just won't carry on and read it. I love that moment when I open a new book. That sort of creak of the spine if it's a hardback, the sort of (coughs) pressing down on the cover if it's a softback, that smell of the paper... At the beginning, 
And after the title page, the publication details, and possibly a contents page, what will we find? It might be a foreword, a preface, a prologue, an introduction, or we might launch straight into the book. As I was reading commentaries this week, I discovered that Bible scholars approaching the Gospel of Mark have what for them is an interesting task, trying to work out what these opening verses of the Gospel are meant to mean, what they're meant to do, how do they function in relation to the book as a whole. And I have to say, I think the distinction between preface and prologue and introduction gets a little bit into semantics... But on the whole, they seem to be agreed that somewhere between the first eight verses and possibly as far as the first 15 verses are some kind of introduction, setting the scene for what will unfold in the rest of the gospel. And so it is worthwhile taking a little bit of time to look at these verses, of which we've actually heard 11, which is one of the um, somewhat arbitrary places people think it stops, because Actually, this helps us to think what we're about as we read the gospel. Uh, It's perhaps not insignificant that we're going to be starting our mindfulness uh, taster sessions this coming week, because one of the things that we are invited to cultivate in in mindfulness, and I might get this wrong, in which case Ailey can jump up and correct me, is what is known as the beginner's mind, the mind that comes fresh as if it's got something new to discover. And that's kind of what we're trying a little bit this morning as we come to this Gospel of Mark, to to try and look at it and and see it with fresh eyes. In the Greek, translated directly into English, the Gospel begins like this. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a simple statement. It's not exactly very eloquent or exciting or enticing, but that's just so typical of Mark. He's well known for his brief words, simple language. But actually this little phrase is full of significance, if we like playing around with words, and I quite like playing around with words. The beginning. In arche, or just arche in, um, in Mark's Gospel. The opening words of the Gospel of John. The opening words of that mysterious account of Genesis 1, the poetry of the story of creation. The beginning. Beginning can mean the origin, both the source of something, the place from which it emerges or comes, and also the point in time at which it began. So is that partly why Mark chose that word? The origin of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The start of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it might do. The beginning can also just have its blatantly obvious meaning. This is the start of what I'm going to tell you. This is where I begin my account. We start here and we go straight forward. And certainly that is the the simplest reading of that first sentence. But there's another possibility. The beginning, the first things, the basics, the principles underpin what is going to be described. 
It's not for nothing that in days gone by we used to call our three-year-old Sunday school classes beginners. These were people who were starting to explore faith and and this was where we taught our basic principles in the stories, in the way we behaved, in the songs we sang, in the activities we did. So is it possibly the case that this gospel is like the introductory module to discipleship? You know, when you first sign up at a new course and they say, right, let's do elementary maths or introductory anatomy or whatever it is. Is that what this is? Introductory gospel book. Well, it probably won't surprise you that the commentators see all of those and probably a few more. Uh, it's runs about 20 pages, I think, in my, one of my commentaries on just this first three verses. There's a hint of the divine origin of what's said. There's a sense that this is a starting point for the reader And certainly it's the starting point for the chronology of the story as Mark tells it. And yes, it's also a basic text for those who want to learn more. And maybe it's worth keeping each of those in mind as we move on to explore the gospel over the next few weeks. What hints of divine or eternal truth do we detect? Where do we fits in um, where do we find ourselves in the story of Jesus's earthly ministry and life as we go through and are there basic principles for discipleship that we might discover as we go along perhaps as some have argued this opening sentence is like a title the first section of what follows so you know the beginning of the gospel according to Jesus Christ underline then we begin to describe that in what comes next Well, if that's the case, then the first proper sentence of the gospel after the title says, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Except if you were listening really carefully when Grace read the Isaiah from us, you'll realise that what Mark says is not what Isaiah says. He takes a little bit of Isaiah and at least two and possibly three, uh, sorry, at least one and possibly two other scriptures, so up to three together, and draws them into something as one statement, which has a truth in it. Um, for those who uh, may or not, may not be aware, at the time that Mark was writing, people generally used a Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, and, and that is quite significant in how he draws his bits and bobs together. So here are the three things that he seems to have pulled together, and I leave it to you to decide whether you think that's what he's done. In Exodus 23, it says this, I'm going to send an angel in front of you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, See, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then Isaiah 40, verse 3, if we use the Septuagint punctuation, not the later uh, punctuation, we get this. A voice cries out in the wilderness, comma, prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
the um, Hebrew translation that we use for Isaiah tends to put the comma in a different place. So it will have a voice cries out, comma, in the wilderness. Both are legitimate translations. But whether or not the writer of Mark has been a bit, care- a bit careless in his attribution or he's kind of done a bit of manipulating, what matters for us as we read it is the significance of what he pulls together here. From the time of the Exodus and the giving of the law, which is where the first one comes from, through the exile and the restoration of the temple at the time of Malachi, the second reference, the Lord's messenger, or the Lord's angel, since the two words are interchangeable when we translate them from Greek, has been leading the way through history, through the prophets and others, and now finds its expression in the voice of a wilderness prophet, crying out to the people. So what's happening here, essentially, right at the start of the book, is the author is setting out a theological statement about what he's going to talk about. All through history, we've been moving towards this point, is basically what he's saying. From the time of the Exodus, God has been sending people on this way, leading people on this way through the exile and the restoration, through the second temple era, up to now. This is all part of a story of God's relationship that continues through time. So what does he say? Firstly, in order to engage with the good news or to receive the news, there needs to be some preparation. The Isaiah passage and others like it explicitly identify the wilderness as a place of preparation. Not a pleasant place, not an easy place, and usually not a place we would choose. But one where we are away from distractions and comforts, and there is space, both literally and metaphorically, to prepare, to reflect, to learn, to discover maybe even to be mindful, who knows. And it's no great surprise then that it is in a literal wilderness, a place of preparation, that a man named John appears seemingly out of nowhere. This is the way that Mark tells his gospel. He just, suddenly there is John the Baptist. And he proclaims a baptism of repentance and announces the imminent arrival of the one who is to come. Preparation, then, involves self-examination and repentance as a step on the journey towards the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. As you can imagine, and maybe you have already read, scholars expend huge amounts of energy debating John's baptism. What was its purpose? What was he trying to do? How does it relate to other kinds of baptismal rites practiced at that time? The idea of baptism as an initiation rite was fairly widespread and initiates into a school of thinking would go into a water and dunk themselves as a sign and symbol of identifying themselves with that movement or that teacher. The idea of dyeing, as in dyeing fabric a different colour, was kind of part of the, the imagery you went in. Green, for sake of argument, dunked yourself, came up purple because that's what you'd identified yourself with. This was completely separate 
from the practices of ritual washing, which were concerned with religious cleanliness. In the ritual washing rites, literal work, dirt would be washed away so that symbolically the stain of, for example, illness or menstruation or ejaculation or contact with a corpse would be taken away. So what John's baptism does is quite radical. It's not an initiation rite as such. It has the aim of forgiveness of sin, of overcoming the inevitable consequence of human fallibility. And whilst it is voluntarily undertaken, it can't be autonomous. It needs somebody else to perform the rite. Perhaps that's a hint that our own endeavours are never going to be quite good enough. We can't do this righteousness, right-thinking thing on our own. We need help along the way. There are at least two ways, apparently, that we can understand the purpose and efficacy of John's baptism for the forgiveness of sins. One is to locate supernatural intervention directly into the right, that by its exercise, it effects forgiveness. And that view continues to this day in some sacramental theologies of Christian baptism, that the right of baptism properly administered forgives sins. Another way of understanding it is to say, actually, this is a stage on a journey towards forgiveness. That being aware of one's nature and having decided to turn towards God, it's a rite of passage, a new beginning, starting afresh. And that view remains to this day in more ordinance theologies of baptism. And to be honest, it's more where I would locate my own understanding of baptism. But whichever you feel more in tune with, and and either has its defenders, the immediate purpose and effect are the same. The repentance and the baptism are preparation on the path to hearing the good news. If we're going to hear the good news, we need to declutter our hearts and our minds, turn ourselves consciously to the divine, I kind of get a sense that strips of the fire and brimstone emphasis, this is not unlike the old-time religion of the street evangelist. Recognize our need for God, turn to God, and start again on that path. At the start of a new year and the start of a series of explorations, maybe for each one of us, however long we've tried to follow Jesus it would be helpful just to stop, to take some space, to recognise in a non-self-critical way our finitude and fallibility, just say, yep, this, this is how I am, and to think, do I want to consciously realign my heart and my mind to God? Do I want to begin again, continue onwards in this journey? Because repentance isn't about self-flagellation, Reflection isn't about saying how bad we are. It's just about being honest with ourselves, realigning ourselves, and going on. The prologue or preface to this gospel moves again very swiftly to observe that Jesus, who also appears out of nowhere, comes to John for baptism. An event that is sealed 
with a visionary or supernatural rending of the heavens, descent of the spirit, and declaration of divine sonship. In a few short words, and with no explanation around it, two huge theological statements are being made here. If you look in Matthew's Gospel, you'll find a kind of attempt to explain what's going on here. And Luke will certainly tell us more about John's ministry leading up to that point. But Mark simply states the case. Jesus came to John for baptism. If the requirement for baptism was repentance, and its purpose was forgiveness of sin, then unlike Matthew, we have to try and make this fit with our understanding of Jesus Christ. Or we may try to, anyway. If we think Jesus was sinless, then why did he come and have a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins? I have a feeling that could be, as so many of these things, one of these adventures in missing the point. If Jesus is publicly aligning himself with God, with repentance, sorry, aligning himself with God, so he's turning towards God, which is what repentance is about, so saying, I choose to be with God for God. And if his ministry and his ultimate death are concerned with the forgiveness of sins, then for him to be baptized seems totally consistent with that. I line myself up with a God whose purpose is forgiveness for sins and as part of that I enter this process of baptism. Well, maybe that's one way of understanding it. I think though the way that I learned as a child is probably the simplest and the most straightforward. That by being baptised, Jesus identified himself as fully human as finite, as open to temptation and, yes, the potential for sin as we are. And perhaps that's one of those basic principles that we're trying to hear here, that Jesus is fully human. Jesus is just like one of us and Jesus chooses to identify with us. But there has to be a but, doesn't it? And before we've even got our heads around that, Mark throws us a curveball. At the very moment that Jesus self-identifies with humankind, his divine identity is mysteriously revealed. He's not just another good man or a preacher or a healer or a prophet or a wonder worker, though all of these he surely is. Right at the start, on page one, In his introduction to all that follows, Mark makes it fundamentally clear that Jesus is the Son of God, the one for whom preparation has been made. Was it a vision? Did it literally happen? Is it simply a myth woven around the random descent of a dove? Is it a theological gloss written retrospectively? I can't give you a nice, tidy answer to that. But Mark chooses to have this voice from heaven saying, this is my son. The clear saying that Jesus is divine, is of God. 
And I know a lot of folk struggle with these kind of more supernaturally things in the Bible because we can't explain them and we can't prove them. And so I'm going to tell you a story I've told you before recently because I remember standing here and telling it to you. But it helps me to make sense of these mysteries and to believe that they happen. It was uh, two years ago or so at the English Baptist Baptist Assembly and there was an extended small group discussion around questions of human sexuality and what were then emerging changes in marriage law. Fairly gentle discussion, people listened to each other quite graciously and views were garnered. And at the end of that session, the speaker summed up what he had sensed and others had sensed to be the mood of the meeting. And then he just said, oh, look. And a pigeon flew over the meeting. Pigeon in Greek is the same as dove. Felt slightly spooky to me, but I kind of went away and forgot about it. And then a year later, at the next assembly, a statement was made giving ministers freedom of conscience as whom they could marry. Not as the end of a process that suddenly, yep, we've got this all sorted once and for all, but a significant step for which some had waited very, very patiently. As others had travelled or were still travelling through their own wilderness reflections, it was a stage on a journey. Was that pigeon the spirit of God? Was it just a pigeon? Well, probably it was. But for me, as I look back, that was a sign of God's spirit at work in that place. You can think I'm nuts, that's fine. Sometimes we can't explain things, but we trust or we instinctively know that somehow God is in this. And so as we prepare again to hear the good news of Jesus Christ as told by Mark, We're invited to examine our own hearts and minds, to clear out our own clutter, to realign ourselves towards God and to prepare to learn from the one who shared fully both our frail human identity and the identity of God. In the coming weeks, we'll discover a little bit more of what that looks like and what it might mean for our own discipleship. But for now, let's just consider our own response to the beginning of the good news. We come together in our praise for others and in our praise for each other. Let us pray. Emmanuel God, God who is with us as the light that shines in the darkness, We have rejoiced once again during the time of expectation in the celebration of the birth of your beloved Son, in the Word made flesh coming among us. And we give thanks that you are the light that shines out in so much darkness that exists in our world. You are the Lord of sea and sky, and you've heard your people cry. We pray for the strength and the humility to shine the light of your love on one another. 
and to shine the light of your gracious promises on one another in love and reconciliation. God of the Epiphany, we bring to you our gifts, we bring to you our thanksgiving, and we bring to you ourselves and our lives. We pray for the wisdom to bring ourselves to you so that we may shine your light on each other and on the darkness in our world. God of the good news journey from Bethlehem, from Galilee to Jerusalem, to Gethsemane, to Calvary. We give thanks for your ministry when you came into the world, the Lord of snow and rain, bearing people's pain, changing the world forever, and transforming lives today. We pray that we will be aware of your presence with us, your presence among us, on our individual life journeys and on our individual and collective faith journeys. For you are with us today and every day, our salvation and hope for the world. Comforting God, comfort your people. You came into an unwelcome world, bringing your good news, the Lord of wind and flame, tending the poor and the lame. You experienced joy and sadness, suffering and the ultimate sacrifice of betrayal and death to bring your good news to the world. We remember this morning those who have lost their lives in the last few days. Some suddenly, some after a long illness. Some made known to us through international press and international events some known to us as members of our congregation, those only known to some of us individually. Comfort your people. We remember those who are suffering, physical suffering, mental anguish, and we pray that the message of your good news will be remembered and lived out by people of our faith, will reach people of other faiths or no faith so that we may all live in tolerance rather than terror, compassion rather than confrontation, peace rather than persecution, and through forgiveness rather than fear. Lead us, hold us in your heart. We have heard you call in the night, and we will go in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. May the blessing of God, the eternal goodwill of God, the shalom of God, the wilderness and the warmth of God be among us and between us, now and always.